on today's podcast. And she had a couple different infections on her stool test, like H. pylori, and we probably assume there was probably some SIBO. And all we did was work on the immune function in the gut and give her a couple of things to like boost up secretory IgA and sort of work on how different things like choline, which can work on fat digestion absorption, which we know in Hashimoto's can be a problem. And I even gave them adrenal support. They didn't take the adrenal support and they were like, my energy is amazing. It was like their number one complaint is like, I don't need the adrenal support. Everything's great. Like the infections, but like just working on the immune function of the gut Mm -hmm. that you needed. If you're a healthcare provider tired of just treating symptoms and ready to dig deeper into the root causes of health issues, the Vibrant Wellness Podcast is for you. With insider tips, expert interviews, and the latest in biotech research, this podcast will take your patient care to the next level. Welcome back to the Vibrant Wellness Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Rivas. I'm thrilled to be here with no other than our incredible Dr. Emmy Brown. Are you pumped for the convo today, Emmy? I am really pumped, especially because I don't think we've had a practitioner who is solely dedicated to talking about gut health and is a real gut health expert. And we all have to be well-versed in it at this point, obviously. I mean, we have to be familiar, but to have a whole dedicated episode to gut health, I'm really excited. Yes. Yeah, I'm actually thrilled. This is a topic I love, and we have a truly special guest. She's the founder of, and I love the name, Gut Honest Truth, Katie Mora, an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and registered dietitian. Katie brings a wealth of experience and a fresh perspective to the world of healthcare. She's on a mission to deliver best practices and sustainable changes. Gut Honest Truth aims to empower individuals to achieve their unique and optimal wellness through exceptional partnership. Katie's deep understanding of gut health, hormone balance, and thyroid health has helped countless individuals uncover the root causes of their health challenges and find long-lasting solutions. Through her science-based approach and dedication to uncovering the what and why behind each individual's health journey, she guides her clients towards regaining control of their well-being. And if you haven't already, check out her website and her social channels because she has a wealth of valuable resources for you. So I am so thrilled to welcome Katie to our show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I didn't realize you haven't had anyone talking solely gut, so that makes me really excited. Thank yeah, you. It's, it's huge. I think at the top of all of our minds is this is something, as I already alluded to before, we're constantly talk about talking about it. Why do you think there's more gut issues today mm-hmm. than you know maybe when we were growing up, we didn't talk about it as much? Why are more and more of these gut health issues popping up? That's a really great question. I think there's a lot of different factors, right? And a lot of them are bi-directional and to what impacts it. But first we can just start with the food, right? Our food is wildly different in my opinion than it was when our grandparents were growing up. And before that, right, we have different farming practices. We have different way that we put foods together, right? And create new foods. And the way we even just eat those foods under stressful circumstances. Now we're in cars all the time, right? We're on the go. Everybody's working in stressful environments. So not only do we have different food that obviously impacts the way that, you know, prebiotics, probiotics, vitamins, and everything that can work with the microbiota in our gut, but we have stress impacting it, right? When we are super stressed out, which is, I don't know anyone that isn't super stressed out pretty much 90% of the time at this point and working one, two, three jobs at a time and have kids and 
the whole shebang, right? And our gut doesn't need to properly work when we're stressed out, right? It shuts down. You don't need to have sex. You don't need to eat. You don't need to poop. You don't need to do any of these things when you are stressed out, right? All that blood flow is going to go to your extremities to fight or flight. And our body really just doesn't know how to differentiate that from a lion about to maul your face off and getting, you know, scolded by your boss before lunchtime. So I think those are two really big factors. I think we throw a lot of antibiotics at people these days and proton pump inhibitors, kind of like a pill for an ill, which many times are needed, but they also have these long impacts on the gut microbiota and how it all functions. So we have more use of medication, more stress, more food issues. We can keep going. It's a good segue into our larger conversation, which is there's so many contributing factors and we can't really combat this more, more, more in terms of, like you said, polypharmacy, more stress, several jobs in certain cases. So I really I think that it's empowering to talk about what we can do. And before we get there, though, we, we talk a lot about myths and misconceptions around gut health in the functional medicine community. I think and there's really no right or wrong. I think there's lots of shades of gray in terms of not only managing gut-related health conditions, but assessing for them too. So I don't know, what are just a couple myths, misconceptions around gut health that come to mind for you? There's a lot. I, I will say more than a, like before I come up with something for myths and misconceptions is I agree with you. There's so much gray area and people, um, that's one thing I always kind of joke about my social media and different things is like, I don't, I I'm very opinionated, but I can't get so black or white about things because that's not how the body works and that's not reality. So I do think a lot of the myths come in when people do go like so strongly to one side versus seeing an individual. So I will just sort of preface that puzzle. Yeah. I, I will say, so whether it's a myth, for lack of better, it's not a myth, but a misconception is kind of the the traditional healthcare world of IBS, right? IBS is probably one of the most commonly diagnosed things that we have in the gut world. And for, no, I don't want to put all healthcare practitioners in one, but we walk into an office, if they can't find, you know, you have celiac disease, you have inflammatory bowel disease, you get kind of slapped on with irritable bowel syndrome and you kind of get set on your way and you get Maybe you get antibiotics, maybe you get a low FODMAP diet and you're kind of told to live with it. And that's absolutely incorrect for most people. So there is a root cause. Are all root causes completely fixable? No, but there's still a lot you can do to manage symptoms, manage your, you know, quality of life and or reverse it. So I think IBS as a whole is like a myth and misconception as a diagnosis. And hopefully a lot of your listeners already sort of know that and are starting to dive into well, okay, what is IBS then? And like, what are the main contributors of that? So that's one big one I would think of. Which one? I know that's, that kind of an overarching (laughs) overarching theme. I would also say like a myth is like, there's nothing we can do about anything in the gut and that you have to take a medication or you have to do a really restrictive diet to get rid of, like we were talking earlier, like parasites or SIBO or CFO or fungal overgrowth, like that you have to be so all or nothing to be able to get well. And I just don't think that's the case. I'd love to talk about how you got started with this, Katie. Obviously, gut health is is pretty niche. Can you share a little bit about your own experience and what kind of started this trajectory for you? Yeah, I always, I feel like I tell a very boring story of myself, but then I like uncover all these million things I've been through over, you know, (laughs) my whole life. So I actually am by trade a dietitian. So I was very traditionally 
trained and kind of went through the system. I did, however, go into my RD program knowing I was going to go into functional medicine. Like I already knew I was going to get the RD to have it on my back. And I knew that I, there was something else. I sort of grew up in, in a household where my mom was like the mom giving you like echinacea at the bus stop. And I was like, people are like, what is echinacea? And I had, she worked in a functional medicine compounding pharmacy growing up for, that was like really a thing. And so when I switched and went to start to learn functional medicine, I went to the Institute for Functional Medicine. And I was probably like the youngest person at that time that like ever, I feel like walked through the doors in my twenties. And I was felt like a little over my head because it was all physicians and I was so young. And I, I already was like, I don't know any of this information. And they're, they're, you know, talking these big words and concepts. And then I went to the GI module first and I sat down in that chair and it was like every light ever and light bulb went off. I was like, oh my God, everything makes sense. Everything I've learned before is nonsense almost. And I was just like, this is so cool. And I just, all of a sudden it was like the first thing I was passionate about ever. And, and really, and I have multiple undergrads. It's <laughs> like, this is it. And I started to go back and practice. And I, you know, I took a job in a, an integrative practice that was doing functional medicine and they sort of handed over their functional medicine gut protocol, right? And it was like two products, a strict diet. And they gave me this and I sort of implemented and became, was like working on the gut all the time. And I was like, this isn't working. Something's not working. And so I started to just dive in and like absorb and teach myself every single thing I could. And I was in such a great position to work with thousands of patients at the time that I, I sort of was like, give it to me and I'll take it over. And I learned everything and just started to become like the gut guru of that practice. And mm -hmm so many patients and coming up with like my own tried and true protocols with obviously the guidance of, you know, some of the greatest minds there are in the gut world and functional world. But it really was like a labor of like love and a passion that I found that I didn't know I had. That is beautiful. It's really exciting to when you feel called, truly called to do something and you get that excited about it. Yeah. I wanted to ask, there's a question that you often ask patients. I saw this on your website and it is, what is the why for them? And I love this because you, you put it, you say, what brings them joy and why do they want to put in the work to regain their health and wellness? I love this question because it, I think it's fundamental to compliance, right? If you find your patient is just not there yet, you know, they're probably not going to follow through on the protocol. So I'd love for you to explain your personal reasoning behind this question and mm -hmm. maybe some success stories you've had with those patients. You know, gosh, there's so many people. I, I don't know why I always think of this one patient. I had this lovely woman. This was a long, long, long time ago. And this was just strictly like weight loss gut patient. It was like nothing. To, I'm sure there was a lot more going on, but like that was the intention, the goal of the patient. And I maybe saw her like 30, 40 times. Like it just, I kept seeing her and nothing. She would never do a single thing that I said until we started to like break down all the psychology of like almost why she was actually stopping herself from losing weight, right? And and this isn't a weight loss talk, but there's so many patients out there that will come to you and say like, I have been sexually abused. I have been told I was overweight or looked whatever away by an ex-partner and it made me want to protect myself. And I just started to like uncover like, especially in, in women who were probably age like 45 to 60, who were in that phase of taking care of children, taking care of their parents, working, having a, a spouse and like so stressed out. It takes so much to drive you to get to that place of taking care of you and your health and putting you first that mm -hmm. finding a why was just like the most important thing I could find for people, you know, including myself at times. I think I talk about on there, like my children and my family are my why. And like, 
being healthy for them and setting examples. So I think it just really, like you said, it really helps people stick to the plan, right? Like follow things that aren't always fun and they're time consuming and there's a bigger end goal in sight. And like, it can't be your practitioner said you're, you need to lose 10 pounds, like, and you'll be healthier. It has to be coming from you. It can't be from a practitioner. Yeah. hundred percent. And I'm sure you have to remind patients about their why, you know, cause they might be coming in, they like to see you, they like to chat. I think it's social hour for a lot of patients and then they're not compliant and you might have to remind them of their why. <laughs> so important. And, and we do lose track of it, especially when we get involved in testing and different protocols as we like mm. do results and we might feel great and hit our goal, but we're like so caught up and what that end result of maybe what your practitioner is actually hoping for and not you. Right. We get distracted. I had that experience with a personal trainer. She was looking at a diet recall, which, you know, I kind of just, okay, I'll play ball, even though (laughs) I'm, I have a doctorate in nutrition amongst other things in health and wellness, but I actually stopped her and I said, whose goals are these? And (laughs) I think I scared her a little bit, but (laughs) that's a great point that there could be a distraction in terms of what the practitioner wants versus what the patient wants. I want to jump into IBS. As we said, it's a huge topic. It's a very misunderstood topic. Before we do that, Katie, how often should one really have a bowel movement? How often should we be pooping? Oh gosh. Great question. So I, you know, it really depends and I can vary. Obviously, I would want to know more about the person to say if that I found that was normal, if you will, or regular for them. I would probably say, I think one to two times a day is probably the best. I personally think some practitioners love the three times a day. I do think that means the food is going through too quickly and you're not absorbing. Ooh. So like, I don't know, unless you are just someone who's actually like really on it, eating a ton, working out, like doing all the things, I would probably say one to two times a day is best. Cool. I love it. I love when we can, and it is a general concept there. Not There's no one size fits all, but at least once a day, when practitioners talk about at least three times a day or at least twice a day and, or else it's no good, that can be frustrating. Yeah. So I think that's very reasonable too, right? Like we were just talking about, I have so many people and they're like, well, like, then they won't be going at all. You're like, or they'll have diarrhea. Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. And before we talk about IBS, I really want to be clear clear as a review for our listeners, IBS versus IBD. Can you give us that rundown? Yeah. So IBD, right? I, I You see a lot less frequently unless you're specializing, in my opinion, in IBD. So that's inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune process. So that encompasses Crohn's and colitis. So you definitely want to be, when you're working with somebody with gut health issues, like ruling out IBD if they're hitting the signs and criteria. So if they're having like mucus in their stools, bloody stools, tons of diarrhea and frequent bowel movements and gut pain, family history. So like you absolutely want to make sure because the way that you approach those, some is, I think of IBS as the IBS, as the, sorry, the IBS within the IBD is often a scenario you see with like SIBO and different things we'll talk about. But inflammatory bowel disease is its own beast, in my opinion. IBS, right, is going to be irritable bowel syndrome. And that's going to be off the Rome criteria and slightly different in terms of, you know, they're going to have a change in bowels, right? There are a lot of people might lean towards diarrhea and they might lean towards constipation, but you might have it be shifting more so with 
irritable bowel. Do you know, I mean, off the top of your head, all the criteria, I'm trying to remember. It's like pain with urgency X amount of times. I don't, I don't have that memorized, but as you talk about, there are so many contributing factors and it's so often that we see people meeting that Rome criteria that I'm, I'm not focusing on that. Yeah. And even if you're like on the edge and not perfectly meeting it, like Clearly, if you're looking into it, you you're you're got a gut health problem that we got to correct. Right, I'm not going to stop there. In yeah. other words, yeah, you don't need the diagnosis to fix it. <laughs> right, yeah. And you mentioned in a prior podcast, main contributing factors to IBS include chronic stress. We've already touched on that. We could talk about yeah. that all day, forever and <laughs> ever. But that would cause more yeah. stress. Gut infections, yeah. digestive output, hormones, food allergies, and sensitivities. That's a lot. Yes. And I don't know how many people can say that they feel strong in each one of those areas or they even assessed each one of those areas to really see if there's anything outstanding, if they have some kind of, not even a digestive complaint, but hormones can present in so many different ways. Yeah. And the biggest thing with hormones and seeing if that's an contributor obviously can be, there's so many different scenarios, but if it's becoming cyclic for somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So especially for females, if they're like, oh gosh, I, and they might not notice your patient and you need to sort of dive into those questions. But if they're saying like, it seems like right before I ovulate or right after, you know, right when my period starts, like different IBS type things happen, you have to think about the hormonal function, not just sex hormones. We're not even talking thyroid yet, but. Great point. So in menstruating people, if there's a cyclic nature, that's really helpful information. And I just I want to talk about infections a little bit more. It is There's some research that estimates upwards of 80% of those diagnosed with IBS also have SIBO. Yeah. That's staggering. Yeah. It's like every, it's everyone. <laughs> I hate to see 100% of everyone, but it's pretty close. Isn't it? mm. Well, it, I always feel, I mean, there's probably... A little bit of SIBO in everybody at some point in time, depending on what they're going through, what are their risk factors, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. And I do think it's, I mean, obviously SIBO is probably top two conditions I work with, but it also gets a lot of blame for things. And I always tell everyone like SIBO is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. I mean, it technically is, but it, it really is a symptom of other dysfunction. And, and namely, a lot of the things you just mentioned, right, as causative factors, there's a lot of that as to how you develop it in the first place. That's a great point. Yes. And we're always digging deeper. That yeah. seems to be the theme of this podcast, which makes yeah. sense. Functional medicine, it's all about root cause. So it's layers, right? But are there specific risk factors for SIBO? And what are kind of the big ones for you? I mean, we are, we're all familiar with repeat antibiotic use, yeah. stress, even food poisoning in the past might predispose to some migrating motor complex issues. But what are the big ones you see? Yeah. So I think it's about 60% is from foodborne illness. So I think that a lot of people don't know they got foodborne illness, right? And yeah. they, and it's just, it is a pretty easy test that you can test for and just basically rule it out or rule it in. But that's a big, that changes the way you approach SIBO altogether is if it is from post-infectious IBS. I will say a lot, a lot of patients, especially those with like intestinal methane overgrowth, or if we're just going to suggest like methane SIBO right now, often there's a thyroid condition. So mm. they are like the classic chicken and the egg, thyroid, gut health. And I almost always, obviously there can be hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide as well, but I almost always see there's a methanobacter issue when there is a thyroid issue. So yeah, so that's a really, that's a really big one. Another one that I see often, and I feel like people overlook a lot is actually structural abnormalities. 
So having how many people, as you know, that have had C-sections that have, right, like have had any kind of abdominals, how many women have had gallbladder surgery? And and gosh, I can't even tell you how many women don't tell me they have had gallbladder surgery that are patients and it comes out like three years later or like, yeah. 10 years. oh my God, I can't get, I'm getting me started on that. Or endometriosis, <laughs> like all these things. Like I think of your small intestine, like a gardening hose, right? Like what happens when there's a kink in a gardening hose? Nothing. It's like a measly trickle out of the hose, mm-hmm. but if it's open and it's flowing, right, everything moves through and you get a nice like watering hose situation in your backyard. So working on the abdominal cavity, having somebody do like visceral massage. And if you don't do it, that's okay. Get a good team to refer out to and like refer your patients to even just do an evaluation on if there are adhesions or kinks in their gut. Cause Hmm. it will, while you are treating, if they are doing that, it will make your outcome so much more successful. I love that. And what about ileocecal valve issues as a via visceral kind of massage? Do you, do you ever see that? Yep. I, a lot of patients, I will either have them go. So I usually give them all like phrases to talk to their therapists to. And one of them is probably like, if they don't know what ileocecal valve is, find a new one. But um, Oh yeah. You got to test them. I I do. And they can teach you how to close it every day. Right. So the valve between the small and large intestine, they can teach you actually how to like support its closure so that you're not getting a symptomatically worse symptoms or bacteria moving through like after meals or if you're constipated, but a lot, I mean, so one thing to note is just thyroid issues. If you have hypothyroidism or you have Hashimoto's, right, you're going to potentially have issues with the valve. Mm-hmm. So it actually can, that change in motility, placebo is a motility issue from Hashimoto's is going to impact your valve function. And then you're going to have issues with development of SIBO. Hmm. So it's sort of like one of those way more complicated things if we want to get into, but uh, like you can't always just say treat the gut if you have a thyroid issue, right? You have to work on possibly the thyroid first or both at the same time and concurrently. But I see that so much as people, if we fix your SIBO, like your thyroid will get better. And that's not always the case. Mm. Good distinction. Very important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you're obviously giving very personalized recommendations to your patients, but do you have more of a structured protocol for SIBO considering you're dealing with bacterial overgrowth? Is there sort of a a protocol you put patients through? Yeah. So I would say I have, for lack of better words, like a mental checklist, sort of the things we're talking about where I'm like, have you had, if they're like, I've had a C-section, usually they're doing this in my intake form. So I can kind of like already know that information, like checked it off, refer out, right? Are they super stressed? Where can we minimize? Do they need a referral to a therapist to work on stress management techniques? Like refer out. And then I will kind of go down the list. We check thyroid if we think that's a thing, rule it in or out. I don't usually start with post-infectious IBS unless somebody came to me and said, I got foodborne sickness, I traveled, I got sick, and then everything was downhill. And they like, just know, I will usually try to do my best to like get somebody in a good place. And if we're unable, that's when I'll go kind of backtrack and test for a lot of people. But I will usually do a stool and SIBO test together, just kind of backing up. Like patient comes in, I almost always do both because- Almost always I'll find H. pylori alongside of it. And I want to treat that before I treat SIBO. That's just the way I treat mouth down. I will treat that. And then when I move into SIBO, it just depends the type of bacteria they have. Mm -hmm. So I use obviously slightly switches, but I will usually use for like four to six weeks at a time, a blend of two to three herbs. And then I shift unless that person's doing amazing on those herbs, then I will probably keep them longer. (laughs) But I usually do about 10 to 12 weeks of some kind of protocol of two, three products or more. And then I will take them off and see how they're doing for a little bit. And then we'll eventually retest. So there's a lot more that obviously goes into that. It's sort of 
hard without knowing the specific type of SIBO mm-hmm. I'm working with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what else is going on? Yeah. And then sometimes I'll always say, if you guys, if you are treating people, please work with motility agents either before, during, after treatment. So I will put people on things like motility and prokinetics for like six months after treatment to prevent relapse. Okay. Yes, that is essential because recurrent SIBO is extremely common. Super high. Mm. Yes. Let me ever think, are you just majority of these people working with people who aren't getting to the root causes, right? There you go. They need to come <laughs> to you. <laughs> so I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, it's so high. And I tell people that. I'm like, but is it? I mean, it is if you have the post-infectious IBS, but I'm like, you're not getting to the root cause if it keeps coming back. So you feel like you can eradicate it. If you think about the what else, I mean, really, we should be able to get rid of that issue if it's secondary to something else, or if we can at least well manage the what else, yeah. right? Yeah, if it's yeah. thyroid, et cetera. I mean, some of it's hard in terms of like stress and food, like stressful eating, we'll call it like all these different things because they're learned behaviors. So we have to like undo it all and focus on it for like the rest of your life is like you're taught and and you sort of handle stress probably how your parents do. And then you have to figure out how to like forever handle that. You know what I mean? And like optimize your stomach acid the whole time and like all these things. So it is a lot of moving parts, but it's doable for sure. Yeah. Yes. I love the optimism. And I want to touch on probiotics. I know we're throwing a lot out there, but, you know, let's shelf SIBO a bit because that can be its own topic. But daily probiotics is a controversial topic. I thought this really fascinating. There was a Washington Post article that came out recently earlier this year, and a professor, Lorenzo Cohen, he's the director of integrative medicine at University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. He was quoted as saying, you can inadvertently create a form of dysbiosis by having too much of a good thing. You're not only crowding out the bad things, but you're crowding out the other good things that you want in there to create high microbiome diversity. And they even go on to mention that there's a lack of microbial diversity and a delay in the return to baseline after post-antibiotic use of probiotics. So I'm really curious. I get this question all the time from providers. Well, what probiotics should they be taking or should I just put them on this because it's reflected in the stool panel? And I think that information is useful, but we have to be careful about whether it's indicated or not and clinically correlate with the presentation and what is at the root. So I'd love your take on And even probiotics in the setting of SIBO and other, and even just for someone who's feeling good, and is it something that they they should take, right? Uh, Yeah, you know, I definitely follow some practitioners that are like so gung-ho, and then some are just so the opposite spectrum. I would say I probably, I'm not, you know, I don't want to say I have like a strong opinion this way, but I probably use them less often than you would think I do. So, and not, and it just might be, I haven't found them to be the most effective thing, if you will. And, or we also have to think when we're, when you're following and listening to providers or learning from somebody or whatever it is, you have to think about what their patient population is as well. Right. So like mine are usually coming to me and they're pretty chronically sick and they've seen like five doctors and they're over it. And I'm having to like, usually kill something and remove something before I can like be like probiotics and good things are helpful. So it's like in patient care, I'm probably just using them a lot less frequently, you know, than I, you would think I would as a gut health person, but they have a time and place, right? I actually agree. I do think in it, they can be really helpful for SIBO for some patients. And then they can also help prevent relapses. You know, research has shown that like they can help prevent SIBO relapses. They can 
also be like adding fuel to the fire, right? Like good bacteria can also, I guess, let me back up for one statement about SIBO is SIBO is bacteria in the wrong place. It doesn't mean it's pathogenic bacteria. I, I actually get a little like up in arms about that. It's just bacteria for whatever reason and motility and all the things we talked about is overgrowing. And that can also be things like lactobacillus, right? That can be, be that. I go off the patient. If you take a lactobacillus, I don't know, bifido blend bacteria blend and you feel great, like let's run with that a little bit. If you feel terrible, like maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's not the right thing. We should reflect back on your stool test. Did you really need those? Did you already have high like microbial diversity? So I do think the way the patient feels is honestly the most important. But I will also say the caveat to that is if you can't come off probiotics and you feel terrible every time you stop them, there's another problem going on, mm. right? You're missing something, whether it's the prebiotics, whatever that is feeding it, they're not flourishing and you have some kind of pathogen or something that's like overgrowing. So I think some of what he said is accurate. And I think some words were probably cherry picked a little bit <laughs> in terms of like what really should be going on. So they definitely take, you know, can be helpful. There, there's, it's one of the biggest supplement markets for a reason, right? They're helpful. I, I would love to hear your feelings or like thoughts on it too. Cause I have like, I can go every direction with this. <laughs> sure. And it's good to play devil's advocate. So there are arguments on both sides, pros and cons. I like to start with food first. That's just really the heart of my training as a naturopath. And it's more sustainable, right? You get prebiotics and postbiotics in your fermented foods along with the bacteria and the other microbes. So I, I'm, and I'm always exploring and changing my mind and I have to stay open-minded in that way. But I like fermented foods unless there's an indication for a probiotic. So there's a lot of interesting research in terms of whether it's mental health, gut health, of course, women's health. So if people, are, if they're having recurrent vaginal yeast infections, for example, taking an oral probiotic, there's some interesting literature out there, but yeah. you're not taking those things forever, right? Hopefully. Hopefully. You don't hopefully. Need to that forever. Right there. And there's like research. My brother is actually a, a psychiatrist pretty well, like up there, a psychiatrist. And he was messaging me one day about like the new research coming out with bipolar disorder and all these things with a couple different strains of probiotics and helping mood disorders. And he's like, do you know one that exists? And I was like, literally it does not exist until I found it was actually the only way this, I don't know why I need to mention this, but the only way I can find it is through an infamil baby probiotic, which is kind of really interesting hmm. that the only probiotic I can find that exists. I went through a lot of them is <laughs> what we're giving to our babies and infants and it's also one that supports acromantia growth in the gut, which I think is really interesting. So it's all talking, okay, we have mood disorders and we have bipolar and all these things going on, but it actually is what it promotes gut bacteria, right? And mucosal integrity. Interesting. Mm. Yes. So yeah. there's all these relationships. It's like a, it's a web of relationships yeah. and, and I wonder why it's not being marketed. <laughs> oh, he's definitely got the patent for that guy. Eventually, <laughs> we're going to see it. Not when I said that, it was like, they definitely <laughs> had that for a long time and we're waiting for the research to, go, to come out. But like, God, I'll take it when it comes out. It sounds great. But it, no, when I agree with you, I, I, I really, it depends on the patient to me. Like, yeah. I feel like people hate that answer, but it's true. It really is like situational. Yes. Yeah. Situational. We have to... Look at the research too and see what the dosing was. Look at the strains. Make sure it's high quality. You know, yeah. it's a variation of numbers and letters, I say, for a lack of a better description, to look at the, to make sure there's the strain listed on that package. 
right? If it doesn't have that, it's probably not a reputable quality product. I was actually in an article with Experience Life magazine with Robert Roundtree and Michael Ruscio and um, and myself, they were interviewing us. All, it's just all about probiotics. So if you're interested, you could just Google that and look it up. But it is interesting because like Michael Ruscio is like all about probiotics. Like he, that's his jam. And then <laughs> daily for everybody to be clear. Oh, he, yeah. He's, if you follow him, it's all, it's just probiotics or everything. And then Robert Roundtree, I just love, like, he's like one of my favorite people ever to learn from. And then there's like me and it just sort of like all the similar viewpoints, but different. So it's an interesting quick read if people are interested in that. Awesome. Well, I know you touched on H. pylori. I want to talk about it in regards to the gut. So how does H. pylori infection affect the balance of the bacteria in the gut and what are the potential consequences? Okay. H. pylori is my favorite thing. This is where you get all geeky. I love H. pylori. I think it's so cool. It's like, it's the worst thing and the best thing. So H. pylori, right? It affects at least like, oh gosh, I think it's widely underestimated by 60% of the population or more. And we've been co-evolving with it for a very, very long time. Um, And I think we're just with new testing and stuff, like starting to really learn a bit more about it. And I still think we know nothing at the same time. But so to kind of answer your point, so we get we get exposed to H. pylori. A lot of us get it as children or we get it when we're like little babies. And then we can get into the research too. I mean, on this of like what it's like when you get it as a kid versus an adult and all of that, because there's some differentiation in the research, at least with that. But it's the number one gut infection there is, right? It can, I like to preface with like, you can have H. pylori, you can have anything. We can, we can have any type of pathogen we're talking about. As long as your microbes are balanced and like working in harmony and your immune system's robust and your digestive output's robust, like you can have it and it can be okay for a lot of people. Maybe one day it won't be okay, but like it can be okay. You can live a healthy, happy It's when it starts to overgrow for people or immune system gets low, whether that's from the H. pylori or for other reasons, that all the out of whack things start happening. So it impacts your stomach acid. And we all hopefully listening know like stomach acid is conductor of all your digestion. So when that goes, everything kind of gets out of whack. So mm-hmm. it lowers your stomach acid over time and then gives people symptoms of high stomach acid, but it lowers it. And then that can downstream affect how well you put bile out, how well you put digestive enzymes out potentially. So then we can poorly digest food, right? And that can lead to SIBO, that can lead to CFO, that can lead to dysbiotic flora just in your large intestine that we can pick up on stool testing. So it can do everything from that. Then just health-wise, it has all sorts of crazy things it can contribute to from like immune imbalances to skin health problems. We can really kind of go probably into a place. I don't know if you guys want to go with each other. <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Like it can just, it really can get out out of whack. And then you'll start to see like clumpings that you can see on tests that you're like, oh, this person definitely has a low stomach acid problem. H. pylori, candida, methanobacter. They're all like besties. They all promote each other's growth. So a lot of times you'll see them all kind of like go together. So you get a fungal overgrowth. There's a lot of things that come with it. Well, you talked about digestion and when it's off, you know, you're not digesting necessarily the nutrition of your food, nutrients of your food, excuse me. What can individuals do if they're struggling with this to ensure optimal nutrient intake despite the infection? Is there a lot they can do or is it just? I mean, there's always something we can do. I would say working on whether it's full eradication or minimizing kind of rebalancing H. pylori with the other microbes would be the 
best bet, right? Because then you're, you don't have to stress. Like you're just the digestion is working as it should. You can do a lot of things to balance. I mean, there's some nutrition things you can do to kind of keep H. pylori at bay too, just like food is medicine. If you want, even from mm-hmm. like honey, broccoli sprouts, there's a lot of stuff actually. So you could incorporate those foods to kind of keep things more balanced, right? And then simple things like working on chewing your food super well is going to be helpful. Not eating stressed out going to be super helpful. Using bitter foods, bitter supplements can be really helpful. I'm not big on like taking external sources of stomach acid support or anything. When you have H. pylori, I think it will worsen everything, but you could do more benign, you know, support at the time. Just okay. Cook food, easier to digest and break down and get nutrition from lots of things you could try. I love all those tips. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. It's a good starting place for some. Some people are so sensitive. You give them one drop dose tincture or, you know, you go and chamomile and they're like yeah. calling you at all hours. <laughs> yeah. You got to go slow, especially if someone's super reactive. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Even with food, sometimes it, they maybe they're so restricted already and you have to meet the patient where they are. So yeah. Absolutely. Great point. And so I really want to segue into digestion. I know that we could talk about H. pylori all day and it is fascinating, but to back up and to get a broader scope of topics here, digestion is one of my favorite topics, particularly because I'm loving bitters right now. Yeah. And I wonder if you use bitters. I really love the Gaia digestive bitters with turmeric. I actually spilled a little bit in the kitchen and the way it stains is remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful. It looks like a highlighter exploded. Wow. But it tastes great. Really enjoying that. And then Wise Woman Bitter Tonic is just a really simple one. It's got gentian and anise and ginger, and that's it. I think it's just those three. But what do you think of bitters? Good one too. Which Uh, one? Urban Moonshine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard of them. Or at least my patients have had pretty good success with, but I didn't know about the Gaia one, so I'm gonna have to try that now. Yeah, um, it's great. More accessible, honestly, to my patients. So that that's a good one to to know, and apparently it tastes good. So that's that's obviously a reason people don't do a lot of follow through on products is they don't taste good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> tastes good. Yeah, I so I always give people I have like a kind of like a free little guide on my website, or I'll send it to my patients that like give you the f- actual foods if you want to try food first and just like actually incorporating better foods. But I think tinctures like you don't have to also use them all of the time. It could be when you're eating out, or it could be meals you just feel like a little bit harder to digest or heavy. You're gonna eat more than maybe like a, you know a celebratory dinner or something like that. They can be really helpful in helping you to break everything down and kind of. A, feel better when you're eating, but like get the best, you know, bang for your buck from the nutrition you're trying to get from that meal. I want to just throw out there real quick. It can be kind of fun too if we're incorporating this into before mealtime as kind of a digestif or that's afterwards, but aperitif. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people think about Campari, for example, but, you know, we don't have to have a cocktail. We can put a little bit of herbal bitters into sparkling water, for example, and yeah exactly make yourself a little mocktail it's good for digestion it helps prime the digestive system and i just love that i think it makes it fun and it makes it more of a kind of a food-based approach yeah Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't realize like digestifs and stuff that they might be ordering after dinner like helping that right what they're actually doing is like (laughs) obviously there's other goals too but exactly like you said like you can absolutely make a little like beverage even just like while you're making dinner and get things moving right Yes. yes. I like that. I'm going to start giving that tip out. I'm all about the fun. Where can we incorporate the fun? 
I know yeah. you have to make it be a little bit like that, or it's hard to comply. Yeah. Even the best practitioners, it's hard to comply. I feel that way as a patient. I'm the worst patient. <laughs> I was like, worst life is so like transparent to everyone and everything. And I'm always like, oh, I'm the worst to supplement. <laughs> so hard. I'm like, I can do it if I really need to, but God, they got to be yeah. like in front of my face, lined up, yeah. and, like everything. Yeah, right. I have mine in my kitchen staring at me on the counter. I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> um, I want to talk about enzymes a little bit more in the digestive process. How do enzyme deficiencies, how can that affect or imbalance the gut? Yeah. So similarly to what we were saying with kind of the H. pylori downstream acid situation is if we don't have enough enzymes to break down fat, protein, carbs, right? We're going to have these macronutrients that kind of like sit in our gut, like let's pretend the person does have an intestinal permeability issue. A, you have these large macromolecules just sitting in your gut, which is like a feeding frenzy for all the bacteria, which can be solely by itself. Like you're not chewing well, or you have an enzyme deficiency why you're having the IBS symptoms, right? The gas, the bloating, the constipation, diarrhea is because the bacteria is feeding on food, causing those byproduct of gas, bloating, diarrhea. Mm. Um, secondly, when you don't digest well and you have leaky gut, those macromolecules now move into your bloodstream, right? And can cause immune reactions of all sorts because really what goes in your gut is like a semi-permeable tube, right? And what should go through there and excrete out is just like micronutrients and things we need to function and survive. And when food proteins start to go into your bloodstream, your immune system is like, well, what is that? That's a virus that, you know, that's a bacteria. That's a parasite. I should get that. That shouldn't be here. And then you just get revved up immunity all over. And that's how people start to get autoimmunity development partially, but, or skin reactions, right. Or like pain and inflammation. So there's like a lot of different ways that enzymes mess you up in the balance of your body. But simply speaking, you don't digest well, you got those big food chunks sitting where they shouldn't be. This might, I'm going to take a, a a detour, if you will. We're just getting so much out of this conversation. I think it's fantastic. We're getting kind of a little bit of everything. You mentioned hormone imbalance, sex hormones in particular, and I'd love to talk about gallbladder disease, gallstones in females in particular. You're probably familiar, and as with most of our listeners, the mnemonic the five F's, female fat, fair, 40, and fertile, which always felt sort of wrong <laughs> and very accusatory. And obviously it's a big stereotype, although it is apparently based on true statistics. So <laughs> with that said, yeah. why, it, why, is, why are gallbladder issues more common in females? Yeah, I would probably say the two biggest reasons off the top of my, my head, off the top of my head, one is that thyroid piece I was talking about before. So right, obviously thyroid issues drastically, it, you know, has increased the rate in females versus males. So we already have that female population with thyroid disorders, especially Hashimoto's. And that is going to essentially when it slows the motility, which is what it does, it slows everything. It slows motility. It messes up how well the gallbladder contracts, right? So we get this extra like cholesterol and lipids and all these things in the liver, and then the gallbladder is not contracting well. So then we get sludge and stone development in the gallbladder, which then leads to a whole other slew of issues. But that's one major way is like the thyroid connection to the microbiome and the digestive function. The other one is sex hormones, right? So females, we obviously have a lot more of the estrogen progesterone situation going on. And especially in 
life changing moments, whether that's puberty or that's menopause or that's having a baby or hormones wildly shift, which is when you actually see gallbladder surgeries and gallbladder flares go up. Mm. So what, hopefully I'm saying this correct and I'm not getting it backwards, but the estrogen basically increases the amount of the cholesterol and things in your gallbladder, right? And then progesterone is actually going to slow as it increases, slows the emptying. So let's think pregnancy, right? When you've got, you're just adding to it and then oh, the progesterone's going up because you're pregnant. It's a double whammy then from the estrogen, mm-hmm. the progesterone. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, it is really cool, right? So that was one I actually talked a lot with Dr. Carrie Jones and learned a lot with her with that one. And I just thought it was really cool. But the thyroid and that, you just got that perfect trifecta for females. Perfect storm. Yeah. Mm. Hormonal cascade. Aren't we lucky? So those are my two. I'm sure there's other, you know, mechanisms of action that could be going on. Just like, you you know, the gut is involved, but is the gut involved because of those things is the bigger question. Right. And in terms of being female, you know, I think you touched on the big ones. So that's helpful. What about companion tests? to stool testing. I mean, obviously we're looking at stool testing for digestive markers, inflammatory markers, microbiome markers. What other types of tests do you like? Are you looking at toxins, micronutrients? Um, A lot of things. I would probably say like my big ones. And I usually have like tiers, you know what I mean? In terms of like, what's my first tier I'm going to start with? As a gut specialist, it's SIBO and stool are like right up there. But I also just know enough to know that I got to do thyroid usually with that or we're not getting a whole picture, especially after everything we just talked about. So I'll do, I usually use a three-hour lactulose test for most patients for SIBO. Mm -hmm. I use all sorts of stool tests for, that's probably my go-to. I like the Dutch test a lot for hormones. I still use that primarily. So I'll use the Dutch complete and look at the adrenals. I'll look at the sex hormones. Those are probably like the four biggest tests I use, but I do a lot of toxic burden testing. So I will use that. Obviously I love vibrance. I use that. And then I will, I'm trying to think of like the next, I, I also use vibrance micronutrient test a lot, but that's not my first tier. Like I usually like to fix the gut and all the things first yeah, before same. I spend the money for someone on that, if you will. But sometimes it's important because sometimes you're not producing stomach acid or different things because your nutrients are such a mess, your hormones, things like that. But primarily it's like a second or third tier test I run. Right. And a stepwise approach, generally speaking, is is what we want to think about for patients. Otherwise it just gets muddied and you have so much data at once. Where do you start? And it can be overwhelming for the patient. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. So many people that will want to come in just be like, I've been sick, like do it all. And you're like, okay, like we can do that with answers. But then you're like, I will know where to start. But then they get so carried away in all the details. And you're like, how do you talk someone off the ledge of these? Like you're going to, when you go testing, you're going to find something wrong on the functional mm-hmm. test. It's very, very rare. Yeah. Unless it's a, a positive negative situation. Like something's going to be imbalanced, even if it's not major. Yeah. And people get very worried. Right. Yeah. And then just real quick, what about food sensitivities? Of course, food allergies is something that I want to assess for oftentimes before food sensitivities. But I imagine that patients want to do that first before stool testing, maybe if there is a concern about cost. But oftentimes the food sensitivities that we see might be secondary to increased intestinal permeability, which is predisposing them to the food sensitivities in the first place. Yeah. What's, what's your take on that? Are you always doing stool testing first? Or if you can do them at the same time, obviously that's ideal. 
So I, it really, really depends. I definitely usually do the stool testing first. And a lot of times what I will do, like in most situations, depending on the individual, but I'll say, Hey, let's do these tests. We'll like, say, let's do stool sebothyroid, right? And that takes about three weeks to get back, plus take the time of the test coming. So what I'll do is set somebody up with an elimination diet of some sort on that week. Ah. So I'll be like, here's a test, perfect time frame to do the minimum of an elimination diet of that like one month, 23 day period. And then they won't have reintroduced anything. We'll have lab results back. And then we can figure out the next step of like reintroduction and what's going on. But I get that question all the time. Like some, a lot of people hate food sensitivity testing. We could talk about that. I'm not one of them. I definitely think it's somewhat a waste of money, almost like the micronutrients up front for a lot of people because and maybe it's just my population because everyone has a gut problem usually. It's <laughs> so I'm like, let's fix this a little bit before we spend money on this test. But gosh, it can be really like, how many times have you seen people on like a food sensitivity test or a food zoomer or something like that where a really random food comes back that like you would never be like, oh, mint leaves. I don't know, like vanilla, <laughs> vanilla extracts coming up. And they're That's like, why do make coffee every single morning? And you're like, well, why don't I just maybe try removing that for a short period of time and see if it makes a difference. Like that is where the beauty and regardless of if the gut problem is causing that food sensitivity, like if minimizing a couple of those things and the frequency someone's having something every day is helpful for their life, (laughs) then we can do that. Yeah. Right. That's the goal. I love to hear that. And from a patient's perspective, I think it's wonderful that you're advocating for your patients. I, you know, there are other providers that would just spend, 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 but I, I love your strategy and your methodology behind that. So, yeah. I mean, if you want to do it, we can do it, but I, I, I do try to like spell it out for people. And I'm just like, where can we best use your money? Like in your time yeah. and your energy. I, love that. I know we're, we're getting close to wrapping up. I'd hate to, to end this conversation. We've got so much great stuff here, but I'm curious if you could share with listeners a really memorable success story of one of your patients. Oh my gosh. Guys, I've had, I've had a handful of patients. <laughs> Thanks. We have a type of case we want to hear about. Maybe something recent, kind of at the forefront of your mind. Something recent. You know, this is not the case just started, if you will, the patient case. I'm working with them. I just found this really interesting. So this is, so I've done very little. I'm just going to throw that out there. But <laughs> I find it really interesting. I don't know why this came to my mind. I just recently saw them. They were working, I can give you a couple, but they were working, they basically were like mom of two finishing breastfeeding, like exhausted beyond belief where you're like, you need your adrenals checked, your thyroid, they had, you know, they have thyroid issues, all these things going on. And we did a gut test and we did basically looked at thyroid numbers and that was about it. Like we kind of started off minimally and she had a couple of different infections on her stool test, like H. pylori, and we probably assume there was probably some SIBO. And all we did was work on the immune function in the gut and give her a couple of things to like boost up secretory IgA and sort of work on how different things like choline, which can work on fat digestion absorption, which we know in Hashimoto's can be a problem. And I even gave them adrenal support. They didn't take the adrenal support and they were like, my energy is amazing. It was like their number one complaint is like, I don't need the adrenal support. Everything's great. Like the infections, but like just working on the immune function of the gut Mm. that you needed. So like versus, which kind of, you know, as I say, Emmy takes us back to our point of like stressing people out with like all these tests and money and things like that is like, if I had spent another three X, you know, 300, $400 on a Dutch test to say, let's look at hormones. Like what would have been the point of that? You know, we could have timelined it for her, but that was one that was randomly came to mind. I don't know why. No, I love that. And sometimes it's the smallest thing. And obviously 
this patient was thrilled with the results of just those few changes. So yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of different ones. I think H. pylori is always my favorite to treat because you can actually do it, not always, but like you can get such successful results in like a two to four week period. So versus being like, oh, this is going to take months and they're like so overwhelmed. It's like if they, if H. pylori is really the cause for a lot of people, you can send them home with like pretty benign products for like two weeks and they'll be like, oh, like 60% of my issues are gone. And you're like, so like, satisfying. It is. It's yeah. one of the, I don't know why I really, and because it's not like for the, for most people, these crazy protocols you have to do, like you can give them like honey and prebiotics and probiotics and fiber, you know what I mean? And like some masticum mm-hmm. and things like that are, that are like generally okay for majority of people to take and safe yeah. and they'll have like life-changing results. So I just love working with that. Amazing. And I think it's a very empowering case to talk about because if we can get a win with the gentlest, lowest risk intervention, then that's fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes you do have to do some, you know, heavy duty lifting when it comes to like herbals and things. But I do think too many people get carried, especially as we're newer into the field and like into certain tests, people want to throw they almost feel like they're going to do a disservice to their patient if they don't like cover everything. But like when your patient doesn't feel well, it might not, it's probably you're giving too much versus starting low and slow mm-hmm. using medicine, kind of entering a few things at once. So like, if you are new to the field, I will just say that, like, take a step back. Like you are that we always forget in that functional wellness space. Like you are probably one of the very first people that is listening to your provider that is actually there and wants to get to that root cause and like dig deeper for them. And they're going to be very grateful for that. So like never feel like you're disservicing someone, never feel like you're not doing enough because like you just being there is usually enough. And like running a test, somebody couldn't get somewhere else, right? Like that, even if it ends up being, you're like, not so in my scope, like find someone to refer to that isn't the scope. At least you got that test for them and they have that result. So I do like to at least empower newer clinicians with that. Me too. Yeah. Right on. Love that. That resonates. Okay. Well, I, I want to wrap it up. We've crammed so much into, into this conversation, so many clinical pearls. So I want to thank you, Katie, for being here with us. We touched on H. pylori and SIBO and IBS and sex hormones and thyroid and gallbladder issues so much. (laughs) So before we let you go, do we have time, Jen, for a rapid fire? Of course. Yes. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> We'd love to learn more about you with our rapid fire questions. Are you game? I'd always am. Open book. <laughs> cool. Okay. I'm going to go first. Who is your biggest role model and why? My father. I'm going with zero thought process. Just know that. So <laughs> um, I just love the way he lives life. Hopefully he's not listening to this because he's like, oh God. I just love the way he lives life. So he's the most honest, loyal, helping person, but he doesn't actually give that energy out, if you will. Like you, he's very reserved and, and different things. But he taught me a lot of actually what I feel like I preach. He's he's a dentist and, and an oral surgeon and he is not functional at all, but he actually like taught me a lot of the things about stress and different things and how my body worked growing up, like as a kid in relation to stress, that maybe that's why I keep talking about it. And I just think he set a very good role model for how I should help others and, you know, give to others and raise my family and do things. Lovely. And we have to keep talking about it because we have to keep coming up with solutions to the stress that's bombarding us every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully he is listening. I think you guys proud to hear that. <laughs> I admit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Next question, Katie. What is the worst advice you've ever received? Oh, my gosh. You know, we'll throw my dad back under the bus. My worst. <laughs> he is probably to more so motivate me, but he he did tell me early on that he knows how I push my button. So I'll probably say it was not an intentional comment that I basically had to associate myself with a physician is, as a healthcare provider to be have a successful business. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, how would I make my own business work? And it like lit a fire under my butt. And here we are. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? And so not only am I running my own business, but I'm teaching physicians how to do this stuff. Yeah. So it was, it worked. So I'll say never, if anyone ever makes you feel, and I'm just getting to my dad, but like makes you feel like you can't do something or you're never going to get it. Like a, you're probably not getting it because some of that person's not making you connect just like the mm-hmm. gut active when I went to IFM. So if it's something you're really passionate about, like find a way and there's other people that will want to help you and make it connect and like you can, you can make it happen, whatever it is. Absolutely can. Awesome. And last question before we send you off, if you could change one thing about the world right now, what would it be and why? <laughs> that's a loaded one. <laughs> Everything um, about the world right now. Oh my gosh. You know, I haven't thought about this one. There's probably a hundred different things I would answer. I think if I could change a simple, like it's not simple, but a simple thing, it would be how our job works, like how all jobs work, (laughs) how our workforce works. I think it's the biggest source of stress for everyone, obviously from financial to time in a day to working. Like I just think all the time, I'm like, God, I'm still working nine to five or something. Like, I just like, how would I be raising my son? How would I be doing this? How would, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just so stressful. So I think I would change it to probably reflect a little bit more of the European lifestyle, but maybe like slightly different, uh, just like we, we break, we have lunch together. You know what I mean? Like you, you share a meal, you talk, it's an hour or more long. Like you can go home, you can see your family. We need a siesta. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, Honestly, the lockdown gave people a lot of that and a taste of that, being able to be like, oh, we're working from home. Obviously, a lot terrible came with it, but it was like, you could be like, oh, my spouse is there too. And we're like reconnecting and having lunch together. And it just, mm-hmm. I feel like it really changed a lot of like perspective and time stressors and things like There's always going to be stress, but I do mm-hmm. think our work, 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 grind, 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 eight to 12 hours a day is like out of control. Absolutely. Yeah, great answer. Well, I love it. Thank you again for being here, Katie. Before we sign off, let's make sure we let the listeners know where to find you on social, your website. Everything's pretty unison. So it's guthonesttruth.com is my website. All my social links are there too. We're probably most active on Instagram. So it's the handles at guthonesttruth. But we have, you know, a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Apple, all the things that you can listen if you're interested. And I don't, am I able to do a shout out for training? Like a thing that we offer for the practitioners? We are, oh, this might be a little released after the date, but I, I digress. We do do... GHT Academy, we do do trainings for newer clinicians if people are interested in learning, obviously with a much more gut hormone focus than other other things. But everything's there. You can just find on 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 my website. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And until next time, stay vibrant. Thank you so much for being here today. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so we can continue to pay it forward together. And remember, the key to longevity is knowledge. Keep learning, growing, and tuning in to the Vibrant Wellness Podcast to discover the latest insights and strategies for optimal health. Join us again next week.
Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy of Vibrant Wellness. As always, consult your healthcare provider before applying any recommendations that you heard here today.